Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that reads and rates books according to filth. I'm Aoife Vrtnach, a historian with a sideline in promoting smut. This week's episode features The Passionate Witch by Thorne Smith, a book published in 1942. As I said last week, thanks to fucking Brexit and the pandemic, I had to mess up my planned running order. I wasn't going to do another very silly book, after last week's ridiculousness with the lustful Turk, but real life has fucked up a lot more than the order of my episodes. So I want to say thank you to my patrons whose support paid for the book for this episode. If you want to keep the smut train on the tracks, head over to patreon.com slash censored pod. The author under consideration, Thorne Smith, is another popular writer whose star has faded over time. According to The Jacket, he, quote, established a one-man literary genre, unquote. Pretty impressive claim. It goes on to say, quote, Since his death, no one has usurped his unique place as a creator of alcoholic hilarity in novel form, unquote. I'm not really sure I understand what that means. Were boozy, comedic novels really invented in 1926 with his wildly popular book Topper? It's not a subgenre I'm familiar with, so anything's possible. Anyway, The Passionate Witch was an inspiration for the film I Married a Witch, starring Veronica Lake in 1942. Smith's book also helped inspire the TV series Bewitched, that ran from 1964 to 72. Also, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the 90s version. A whole subgenre of supernatural comedy was started by this little book. To be honest, I'm not surprised it led to films and TV. It's extremely film-friendly. I could imagine it as a film when I read it. Smith took dark, supernatural subjects like possession and cursing and stripped all the horror out of them. Yet weirdly, the plot depends on the main character and you, the reader, being repulsed by witches and witchcraft. Honestly, the amount of doublethink needed to experience the book is something else. It should be said that this is not considered a good example of Thorne Smith's writing. He died in 1934, before he'd finished this book, and it was completed by Norman Watson. The Passionate Witch wasn't banned in Ireland until 1958, 
when it probably felt a bit old-fashioned, even in a comedic sense. It's not bawdy, and it's not lewd. As an American book, it's not characterised by end-of-the-pier smut that we would be familiar with in Britain and Ireland. But the back cover of my 1949 edition says this. There is no middle course to be taken with Mr. Thorne Smith. Either give yourself up to laughter or run for your life to the sanctity of your domestic hearth. Sort of implies that only prudes would be offended. But obviously nobody is more prudish than the Irish censor. And I'd like to welcome back to the pod, Victoria Pearson. She's not here with her historian hat on today, but with her goth personality fully to the fore. And the reason I invited Victoria to talk to me about this book is because she actually brought it to my attention in the first place, because she found it in her mammy's attic. Tell me more, Victoria. How did you find this book? I found this book over the summer. I was down uh, visiting my family home and I was up in her attic and I came across this secret stash and it was like pushed way, way, way back into the corner of numerous bookcases that my father has up in the attic. And it was a little kind of, as I say, a little cache of these really tattered looking pub fiction books. And there was a number of, they would remind me of boys comics from the time. They were kind of, you know, like like a copy book page from the exercise book in school. Kind of, you don't get books made in that shape anymore. So when you find them, they're really unusual. And they were all about problems that girls would have. And they had these like fantastic covers. And it was all, you know, about, you know, kind of the teen mags of the day. And on the back of them, I was really surprised. There was ads for tampons which is sort of something really unusual to find in 1960s Ireland. So I guess that these magazines probably weren't bought in Cork, maybe came into my mother's possession when she went on holidays to her relatives in Wales, or, you know, kind of maybe she wrote away from them and they were posted to her. I don't know. But with these magazines was this really tattered book called The Passionate Witch. And on the cover, there is a gentleman, a really suave gentleman, and he's walking down some steps on a red carpet. And he's carrying, I mean, a bare ass, not a stitch of clothes on a lady over his shoulder in a very nonchalant way. And I thought, oh, my God, what's this? What's this? And I took it out from the attic and I had a look through it. Now, even a mere glance of this book, right? you can see that it is well-worn. So it must have been thumbed through and read from cover to cover on numerous occasions. And it's not over time that the book has become wrecked because, as I say, it was like placed really carefully in a bookcase, away from sunlight, away from prying fingers. It was almost hidden in a way. So it's not time has ravaged this book. It is well-worn. And then... I suddenly realised these belong to my mother. I suddenly got this like massive realisation that my mum must have bought those sometime, you know, before she got married. And I don't know why I think that. I just think it's just you know, the way like the, the content in them seems to be like young women's content, you know, kind of, as I say, a lot of the material with them are like teenage magazines. So I was thinking, did she have them from before she was married? And then this wonderful notion conjured up in my mind it was almost like she was like speaking to me from beyond the grave and I thought 
oh, did my mom have these as a teenager? And the reason that they're so tashy and torn was she passing them among her friends in the South Presentation Convent in Cork. So was there this really subversive movement where they were like going to the Legion of Mary and going along, you know, to to see um, the Song of Bernadette in the picture houses and going to mass and doing their presentation day, you know, parade around the gardens. But all the while they were passing around some subversive material between them. So that's why I, I contacted you, Aoife. I was like, is it banned? Like, let's go the whole hog. Let's see. Did they like go you know, cross the Rubicon? Let's see how far they were trying to push the envelope. Was it actually a banned book? And we discovered it was. It was banned in 1958. So my mother was born in 1945. So she must have had it around the time of the ban or just after the ban. I'm just going to have a look at what well, her edition actually comes from 1942 when it was printed. Who knows where this book came from? There's secrets going on. That's what drew me to it is that it is literally a book of secrets. If this if these pages could talk, what would they tell us <laughs> about life in a convent school in 1960s Ireland? I would say quite a few tales. <laughs> Those convent school girls, they've always been, you know, suspiciously demure. <laughs> if you see my mother and I actually went on the hunt for a photograph and I couldn't find it. It must be down the family home in Cork. There's this really demure picture of her with her friend, her best friend at the time. And they're sitting up on a pony and trap in Killarney. They're down there on their school trip because there's a presentation convent school in Killarney as well. And they have, you know, the short hair and it's like, ter- you know, it's set. And they have like the, the long pinafores and they have her friend has like, you know, those real 60s glasses with the wings on them. You know, they look the complete part. It could have been, you know, the cover of, you know, a Catholic Truth Society of Ireland pamphlet. You know, there's so much of that time. You know, they're just they leave the crosses around their necks. And all the while, all the while, they were listening to the Hucklebuck and reading The Passionate Witch. It's perfect for the podcast. I mean, what could be better than someone finding their mother's stash of dirty books in the attic? Yeah. It's just the business. <laughs> As a past pupil of the presentation convent school in Cork myself, I know that there is kind of a lot of sort of nukes and crannies where like you could like, you know, sneak something around. You know, there's like a kind of a lot of it's a really, really old convent building. So there are, you know, these kind of corners, these weird, awkward corners, you know, where extensions were built on where you could like kind of hide for a second and pass something along. But it's the thought that they were that it was there and they were probably doing it. You yeah. Know? And it's like, quick, here's here's sister today is hide. <laughs> I just love it. So to go with all this divilment and misbehavior in school, well, we have to talk about what drink we would have for the episode. This book is just all about booze. It's a hymn to intoxication. Uh, the whole point is that the main character is a teetotaler, and once he starts drinking, he turns into an interesting person. I suppose from the point of view of the book, the drinks mentioned are whiskey, bourbon and cocktails made from those. So that's really what would be what best encompasses the flavour of the book. If you don't want to drink, you could have a carrot juice, of course. What would you prefer now, Victoria? Carrot juice or a bit of whiskey? I'm not a whiskey drinker, I have to admit. But I think in keeping with the spirit of the book, I would have a blue nun. (laughs) (laughs) The spirit of the story of your mother's encounter with the book. 
my mother herself was a teetotaler, pioneer in the whole lot, right? Now, I, I don't know. I take that back. I wasn't, I'm not sure if she was a fully fledged pioneer, but she de- she definitely never, ever drank in her life. But I would think that somebody in the book would drink something like a Cosmopolitan. I could see somebody in the book, you know, drinking or the, or the witch of the title, drinking a Cosmopolitan. But I definitely think in terms of 1960s Ireland, we would have to have a blue nun. Or if we were being really, really subversive, a baby sham. Oh, a baby sham. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we might as well. You know, that that's the, the keeping of the spirit of this book, I think, in the context of Ireland. I suppose I'll just give the book a quick summary, right? It's not the sort of book that um, has a literary plot, but you kind of do need to know what's going on. So the main character is Mr. Woolley, and he's an upstanding member of a small American town. He's also written as a bit of a killjoy because he's committing, in the book's eyes, the cardinal sins of being both a vegetarian and a teetotaler. His secretary, Betty Jackson, has the hots for him, but he's too stupid to notice. And then this crazy moment happens where he rescues an entirely naked woman from a burning hotel. He carries her outside in a fireman's lift. So the whole town had a view of her arse and uh, more, presumably. What she had for breakfast. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) It's a very gynecological view to offer, isn't it? (laughs) He then decides to marry her because she's hot as fuck. And he's literally on fire with lust. He talks about being on fire. He then works out that this was a bad idea when he learns that she's a witch. Because sacrificing a rooster in the bathtub kind of gave the game away, really. And then cue japes, shenanigans and lots of coincidences as he tries to rid himself of a tenacious witch wife, which is very difficult to say. Uh, There's Turkish baths, cross-dressing and at the very end, a possessed horse. And it's all... A bit mad, really. I have to say, even though it's so tantalising, you know, everything that you said there is like you would really wet your appetite to get stuck in. It's The prose in it is not really easy to read. No. It is a kind of a hard slog to get through it. And I suppose to a modern audience that's used to it all, you know, being shown to us on the, on the small screen, on the big screen, every detail played out. The nuance and the kind of double entendres and the kind of, you know, unspokenness of this book, I think, is begins to jar on the modern mind a little bit. You just kind of want them to spit it out and just say what they mean, but they never do. <laughs> you know, it's all really, really hidden away, you know. So I, that's why I do think that this book was purely purchased for titillation purposes. It wasn't. I could see somebody like fast forwarding a couple of pages or somebody saying read page 25 to 32 <laughs> that sort of way yeah because the rest of it's shite so don't bother like the question i always ask of course is why was it banned well like you say it's not it's not super obvious the sex and it's not particularly racy and although i could summarize it in a way that made it sound great it's not and for context, to ban it in 1958 seems quite late as well, because even I would suspect by then the book itself and its style was old fashioned. You know, it's nearly the 60s in literary terms. I was thinking about this and I don't think that they're getting um, too put out about, you know, occultism or, you know, weird and unusual sexual practices in this book. I think what it is, is that when the cracks start to appear in the late 50s, early 60s, the censors are concerned with stopping a tide 
they see it as part of a greater movement of modernity. So, you know, books like this are pub fiction quite popular? If they left them freely onto the Irish market, they would be quite cheap to buy and they would be mass produced. Like the front of this book says that it's two and six, which is half a crown. Not an awful lot of money in the in the early sixties. You know, within the, the 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 price range of you know an ordinary person and probably the price of an entry to the picture house. I don't even know if they would have even have opened it. Just looking at the cover, they would have thought this will give them ideas. It will make you think that there is a world outside the one that we are trying to create in Ireland and we just can't be having that. Who knows where this book will lead to? This is the start of the dry rot here. So it's banned. So it's a gateway drug, really, is what you're trying to say. It's the same argument that is produced when we were teenagers in the 90s in Ireland. You know, you start off with cannabis and before you know it, you're like shooting heroin into your arm. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same. It's the same cautionary tale. I think I definitely think anything that will give somebody ideas has to go. And I think that's the beauty of how why this book survived. It's because it was giving these girls They were craving ideas. They wanted ideas. We need ideas. We need to see how other people are doing things. And because every book wasn't open to them, they had to find, they had to literally go and find things that would be slightly accessible to them. And then they came across kind of weird pub fiction like The Passion Witch. And what you say about suggestiveness and ideas, I think is really interesting because the book itself, like the sex is not explicit. It's literally between the lines. It's a, like a dot, dot, dot kind of thing. There are illustrations in this book and it, it makes a big um, point of telling you that it's illustrated on the cover. And the illustrations, I suppose, are kind of, they're, they're really weird. They're like geometric drawings. There's one um, illustration of the witch herself, the titular witch, and her legs and her arms are caught up on um, exercise rings, you know, the ones that hang from the ceiling when you're doing PE. And it's like a very suggestive sexual pose. And of course, obviously, it's on the back cover to suggest that to the knowing eye, you would see what was actually going on in this picture. But I also think to the to the naive eye to the not so knowing eye like maybe the girls in the presentation conference who might have only had half an idea of what was going on this picture is so alluring it's like we have to read it now we have to find out what's going on oh look look at the ideas that this picture is giving us you know and I think that's crucial in the way you know people's minds were developing in the 60s and how ideas were developing in the 60s in Ireland I mean, specifically, the ideas would be around tits because there's lots of tits in the drawings. It's boobalicious. This book is very much written for men, like a really masculine sort of tongue in cheek, you know, way of looking at women. And of course, the fact that, you know, the titular character is a witch sort of almost takes away from her power as a woman in many ways, because she's not powerful because she's a woman. She's powerful because she's supernatural gifts. So a woman can't be powerful in her own right. She can only, and if she is, she's something extraordinary. She's supernatural. She's, you know, strange and unusual. You know, it's it's not the natural sort of character for a woman to be powerful. So we kind of dilute her power by making her the witch. 
But it is it is a very masculine book in that way. All that chauvinistic humour that we hate so much now is all in this book. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, one one of the most chauvinistic things about it is how it treats the main character before he becomes, you know, a lecherous, drunken Egypt is he's very much slagged off as a pathetic, small-minded desiccated husk of a man who just isn't getting his end away and doesn't care about it. He's really pilloried for that, as opposed to someone who's just maybe not into anyone right now. You know, it's okay. Yeah, I know. And it is, it's, yeah, it's that fact that you have to be gregarious and you have to be this and, you know, you know, you have to have all those attributes to be really a man. It's like that real chauvinistic kind of machoism culture that's in it. That's the, the, the story and the intent of the story. But the, the circulation of the book to me means so much more in terms of, yeah, that giving the ideas to people. Yes. And I think the illustrations are probably more important than the text in giving people ideas. And I can see, and actually, if you saw the book that's in my hand, it's always the pages with the illustrations are more pliable. So I'd say they were pulled open much more often than the actual than the actual written text and there is a few verses that have a little pencil mark next to them as well yeah you know it just it's just a hand of somebody else that read the book and what they were trying to point out to kind of expand upon that because one of the funnier lines in the book is it's on page 86 and it says hex not sex which is so slogany i do think like the witchy stuff that must have raised a certain amount of hairs on the back of the necks for some of the censors. I know they're no longer priests at this point and that the board has been wrested from the control of the real art conservatives. But I do think that that witchy stuff is kind of interesting in the book and what use it makes. What parts do you find malevolent? The sacrifice of the rooster, I thought, was a step too far. I think that was really kind of going into that whole realm of occultism. 
And occultism was on, you know, becoming quite popular in the 1960s. You know, it was tied into that whole culture, culture, countercultural movement that was going on. There was a whole, you know, by the late 60s, there was sort of pockets within the hippie movement that had gone into paganism and had, had kind of strayed kind of further into occultism. And it was becoming on trend, you know, because it was always kind of occultism's always been kind of associated sort of with like kind of an upper middle class, big country house type of set. You know, the rise of all of those occultist movies, you know, the the um, Blood on Satan's Claw and The Devil Rides Out and Dennis Wheatley and all of that, there was there was a big attraction coming um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And I think maybe this is one of the books that was sort of inspiring that at the time. But I think as well, in terms of Ireland, again, I think the mention of the witch at this stage, because it's, a, as you say, it, it's sort of the end of the era of that ultra conservatism. I think the witch is is a negative symbol in Ireland because it represents a form of Irishness that was trying to re- reject in the 60s, you know, with the coming of Sean the Mass and WTK Whitaker and the economic policies and Ireland begins to boom and people begin to buy cars and cookers and put central heating into their houses. We want to leave aside the old Ireland of, you know, cabins and sitting around the fire and churning your own butter and Biddy Early giving out the cure. It all seems so quaint and antiquated at that stage and sort of the Ireland that we were looked down on for what we were ridiculed for being kind of the backward Irish when we went to England and parts of America and you know we were seen as you know kind of a burden on people when we showed up because we were coming from a country that was so economically based in the 1930s you know that whole idea of witches and superstition was seen in the 60s by a certain kind of middle class as the Ireland we want to leave behind now and modernise. I wonder also, is the witch in this book, why she might be ultra threatening actually, is she's kind of a modern witch, you know. That has a lot to do with it too, isn't it? It's kind of, even though we're crying out for modernity, we want it on our own terms. Yeah, and she is a very modern witch. I mean, she's kind of like, she's only marrying Mr. Woolley and all of that for his money. Like, she hasn't actually got any occult desires to, I don't know, bring about the end of the world or increase the followers for Satan or any of that rubbish. I mean, she's just looking for a man with a big bank balance who'll buy her six pairs of shoes. That's really why she's getting married. Yeah, and using her, you know, supernatural powers to benefit herself. And a witch isn't really a concept that we have in Ireland. You know, it's more like the the Manon Fasas, the Ban Fasa, um, the wise woman. But the wise women in Irish tradition always help others and never benefit themselves. So you have somebody like Billy Early who gives out the cure in County Clare. But one of her stipulations is she can't take any money for it. Now, if you buy and bring her a chicken or a bottle of whiskey or, you know, some gift to the house, you know, the cure will work. But if you offer her money and she accepts it, she would lose her power. So there's an Irish way of thinking about the supernatural. It's always the woman is doing it to the benefit of other people. She can never use it for her own benefit. And I think that is kind of the subversive nature of this, which it's saying to women, you can use your power to benefit yourself. It's classic American do-it-yourself, self-made consumerist ideology, isn't it? Even if it's supernatural. 
you know, that idea is that, oh, you can be anything you want if you work hard enough. Again, you get the feeling up until the 60s, you know, and kind of like the sexual revolution of the 60s in America, even in a progressive society. And, and I mean, how progressive, you know, we could argue all day about how progressive America is even up to the modern day. But it always felt like that that was to do with men. All men are created equal. Do you know that sort of philosophy? So even for women to do it, it is sort of very subversive and I mean even though it's really tongue-in-cheek and it's you know kind of you know really trashy literature it does have a broad you know it does have all those kind of deep philosophical questions in it as well. It has a weird kind of sometimes you're like are you serious you just said that and then it just skates on over it and moves on to the next silly thing. I think it's like leaving it up to the discretion of the um of the reader to kind of their own, the, the, the level of filth in their own mind can come up with their own conclusions to what's going to happen next. <laughs> That's the best thing about implied filth is that, you know, you can add your own colouring. It's like colouring the, the shapes yourself. As a book, would you recommend it? Do you think? I know it's not widely available anyway, so you'd really want to like enjoy it if you wanted to read it. It depends on what your motivation is for reading it. You know, if you're into, you know, looking at really kitsch pub fiction, I would recommend it. Or if you're somebody, again, has a love for that kind of era and that writing, I would say if it's if you're somebody looking for, you know, a really juicy or a really in-depth account of witches and occultism. No, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, the prose in it is quite hard going. Again, if you got it in a charity shop for a pound, I would pick it up just for its kitsch quality and to have it. It's celebrated really as the book that inspired first the TV show Bewitched and the, the original one in the 60s and then the later reboot and sort of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And there's kind of a big rise in her fandom at the moment with the new um, series of that. Also, I would say to people that its kitschiness and kind of the its, its play on kitschiness I feel that this book and definitely its storyline and tra the trajectory of its storyline was the book that inspired the recent pastiche movie, The Love Witch. I think it came out in 2016. So if you're a fan of The Love Witch movie, I would probably recommend it. Go back to source and have a look at where the, those sort of ideas came from and the kind of material that that film is trying to emulate. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, like you say, if you randomly come across it and it's really cheap, it's not a waste of your time. Let's then just finish it off with a bit of the old censorship bingo and see how many scores we get. I have a bad feeling that it's not going to score very highly at all. So first off, as usual, breasts. Well, not in the text, but the pictures certainly have enough boobs. There is not an illustration in this where she's not falling out of her top. Cleavage all over the place. She does. She needs to get herself fitted for a good bra. <laughs> it looks like she doesn't need one. <laughs> I know. There's not a picture in this. She doesn't suffer from double tits. Not a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we got to take it just for the illustrations. Bestiality. Well, in spite of the fact that it's witches and, you know, you could go there. I don't think it ever did. No, no, I don't think so. And like in the really kind of, you know, glossy, fermanca tops, you know, work tops of America, I don't think bestiality would really fit in. Sex work, also nothing. 
No, no. When I, there is a suggestion again that she's kind of using her sexuality to get places and, you know, to kind of keep her in the lifestyle that she's accustomed to. And she's kind of casting the wee spell here and there to make sure everything goes her way. But no, no, she's not kind of, no, she wouldn't consider herself a sex worker. No. No. Racism. Oddly, I didn't see any random racism because normally books like this have random anti-Semitism. Yeah, and I was waiting for maybe like a a, um, a black, you know, kind of maid or something, you know, like a kind of Tichaba character to come into it. But no, again, I think they want to kind of associate this sort of witchcraft with modernity again. So you have to, ha- you know, you have to leave behind all the kind of voodoo and the kind of earthy witchcraft that's like kind of associated with America in the Salem witch trials and you know with New Orleans this is kind of a really clean modern streamlined kind of witchcraft definitely so we can't take that either next up is drugs I didn't think there were any drugs in this were there no, but I would suggest too that like the spell casting and kind of the hypnotic kind of qualities, like you don't ever really know, does he genuinely fall in love with her or is like it's kind of like a love potion or maybe a love spell she has cast? I think she does a lot of manipulation as well, that she doesn't even need to use witchcraft at the very beginning because she just manipulates him. Yeah, that's a good point. She does have the appeal. At the very start. At the very start, before he realises that she's dodgy. So I think, I don't think we can really take drugs. Uh, politics, no, definitely not. Swearing, no, there is not a, not even a damn, actually. No, no, because they're, again, they're too modern and too streamlined for that. No, no. Infidelity. Well, yeah, I think we have to take that because Mr. Woolley after he gets married, uh, has a bit in the side because he's torn between two women, feeling like a fool. Yeah. And that's sort of expected in that lifestyle too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you wouldn't get any comedy in if he didn't have two women on the go. Crime. I can't say that I saw anything noticeable apart from being a witch. Uh, next up is genitalia. Well, no, the illustrations have nothing apart from boobs. So there's no, no genitalia. In mine, there, as I say, those kind of weird illustrations where you see kind of like an arse cheek or there's one, I think, that actually kind of suggests an orgy, the way it's all mingled together. Oh, that's the Turkish bath. bath. Yeah, but there's none that really, I mean, the front cover, she is naked, but you literally can't. You can kind of see like the rump of her bum, but other than that, nothing. Yeah, so I think we have to say no to that. Uh, Abortion, no, certainly not. Orgies, no way. Uh, Sexual assault. No, but again, there is sort of a demeaning attitude to women and sex anyway, but I think it's just the time that this book is written at. Exactly. Extramarital pregnancy, no, divil a bit. Uh, Masturbation, no. Sex toys, no way. The mirror, the mirror. Hold on a minute now. The mirror surely is some sort of kind of sex aid. I suppose if we were being generous, we could take that because the mirror is pretty odd. Feminism. Oh, definitely not. No, no, no. This is very anti-feminist. Divorce. Yes, because Mr. Woolley wants Jennifer the witch to fuck off and get, get a divorce. Yeah. Yeah, after the rooster blood thing and the tooth 
toothbrush and I mean, anyone would be a bit freaked out by that, let's be honest. I know, yeah. The thought of anyone using your toothbrush is just a bridge too far. Uh, contraception, no. Uh, menstruation, God, no, definitely not. Blasphemy. Now, what do you think about this? God doesn't really exist in this world. It's sort of, again, it's all about modernity and it's all about individualism and the power of the individual, you know, so God doesn't exist In the context of 1960s Ireland, I think that would fall under blasphemy. Do you know the fact that you're imagining a world where God doesn't exist? Yes. Yeah, I think there's an argument that it would be seen as blasphemous, even if it doesn't directly reference anything. The conservative nature of Catholicism at the time could bear no form of dissent. Exactly. Yeah, we'll tick that one then. Oral sex, no. Well, all the sex is implicit. Um, Graphic violence. I don't think there's a... Well, she gets killed with a knock on the head. but That's not at all graphic. No, it's very, very sanitised. Absolutely. No, so we won't won't tick graphic violence. And lastly, queer content. Well, definitely not. Not even a whisper. No. When, When they're talking about sexual politics in this book, it's definitely heterosexual. Okay, I'll... Count it up. So one, two, three, four, five. Five out of 25, Victoria. It's the lowest score ever. That's disappointing, isn't it? But does it not get bonus points? Not so much for its content, but what it did when it hit the ground in Cork in the hands of girls from the South Convent. Does this not get bonus points for its subversive content, its subversive ability? In, in 1960s Cork. I think it does, Eva. I think it gets bonus points for being an example of those female networks of communication and subversion because people have said to me since I did Forever Amber that their female relatives kept copies of it hidden and it was part of this kind of within a family and within friends. It was a book that got passed around. And I think that's a really important aspect of dirty books, even if they're only suggestive. Exactly. It's it's part of that whole conversation of, and I think we talked about this before, it's the whole conversation of we couldn't talk about sex. So we had to see how other people were talking about it. And then you kind of had this obligation to pass that knowledge on to somebody you think you thought could be trusted. Follow up to this book is that my mum, when I got to about 12, I think, came in one day completely out of the blue without warning and handed me a copy of Every Woman, which was this book that came out again in the 1960s. It was one of the first sort of um, maternity manuals that explained to you in diagram form how babies grow in the womb. But it also explained to you about sex and contraception. And she walked in, it's got this really kitsch 70s cover as well. She walked in with this book in her hand, which she used to keep in a plastic bag wrapped up in the bottom of her wardrobe. She came in and she handed it to me and she said, you might read that sometime. I just walked out. And I'm sure in her head she ticked off the sexual education box. So <laughs> instead of me trying to read behind the lines of the Passion Witch, goes straight to the hard stuff, Victoria. <laughs> Have a book with diagrams of the inside of women's bodies, for God's sake. Exactly. And, and the outside of men's bodies. <laughs> Did you pass your copy of Every Woman on to anyone else? 
No, I actually didn't. I actually didn't. I think at the time as well, I, she gave it to me and I was like, oh, Jesus, it looks like such a boring 70s book. Go away. And I just like flicked through the pictures. I think, yeah, maybe I would have shown the pictures to a few friends. All right. We would have had like an old oddle at like the pictures, you know, because some of them were really graphic. If you're looking for titillation, go and source um, an every woman book from the 70s. But I have to say, and I think this is a subconscious thing. My every woman book, because I went looking for it again, you know, in preparation for the show. I had it right at the back in the corner in the back shelf. <laughs> Hidden. Hidden. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, you kind of inherited that attitude to the book, that it was a hidden thing. Kind of inherited that sort of thing, yeah. But I go in a weird way, it sort of means that I'm initiated into the sisterhood now. I've got the secret knowledge hidden away. Well, Victoria, thank you so much. That was great fun. Thank you so much, Aoife. I love coming on. We learned an awful lot about the Passionate Witch, really, didn't we? And 1960s Cork convent school life and uh, the shenanigans that the girls were getting up to. Yeah, pinafores had deep pockets. What were in them? (laughs) Let's not even go there now, because we got to finish up somehow. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm sticking with the supernatural theme for next episode when I'll be reading To the Devil a Daughter by Dennis Wheatley. Apparently, Wheatley's spy fiction partly inspired James Bond. Hopefully, there will be demonic nymphomaniacs in exotic settings next week. A girl can dream. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.